0: I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome and I think the thing that I want people to remember is you don't know the story of the person who is sitting across from you or sitting at the desk next to you. We assume everyone has gone from success and peak and peak and peak and there's never been a valley, There's never been a setback. That's just not true. Everyone has values. Everyone has setbacks. Everyone you're interacting with, from the CEO to, to your professor, is a human being just like you. Just keeping that in mind to me has really helped. It's not solved, but it's helped some of the imposter syndrome. We're all humans, and I find a lot of inspiration and a lot of creativity in learning people's story.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science, as well as clips from the show. Join the free Open Mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show i Our guest today has over a decade of experience applying his knowledge and expertise to the great trifecta of industries. I'm talking corporate and academic, all mixed in with some entrepreneurial endeavors. He's a passionate communicator and data science educator who strives to make our art form more accessible and understandable so that everyone can make better data-driven decisions. He successfully coached and managed cross-functional teams of all sizes to help them translate their ideas into successful businesses and improve their go-to market strategies. He studied at some of the top universities in North America, from Columbia to George Washington, the University of California at San Diego. He's gone on to earn a PhD in computational social sciences from UC San Diego, where the bulk of his research focused on applied statistics, machine learning, and causal inference. He's also published in multiple academic disciplines and has a plethora of patents. And if all of that wasn't impressive enough already, he's contributed to research efforts at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, Emory University, and the University of Michigan. His contributions and expertise have led to numerous startups and nonprofits inviting him to serve as a mentor or advisor, both in the San Francisco Bay Area and abroad. He's currently the AI research leader for the Consumer and Industry Lab at Ericsson Research and was previously principal data scientist at Ericsson's Global Artificial Intelligence Accelerator, where he was responsible for formulating data strategy and influencing data monetization for a global telecommunications company that powers 40% of the world's mobile data. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who has provided technical and innovative leadership around the world, Dr. Paul McLaughlin. Paul, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I really, really, really appreciate it. I'm
0: really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and it's a good thing that this is not a video podcast
1: because after hearing that intro, I am blushing beet red. Oh, man. Well, you know, you've accomplished so much in your career. It was really, really hard for me to write that intro because I had to choose between what to leave in and what to leave out. Talk to me about your path into data science. What sparked your interest in the field? Where did you start, and how did you get to where you are today? I mean, I think that's a really good question and one that
0: doesn't really have an easy answer. So I don't think, uh, you know, I I didn't want to be a data scientist when I grew up as a kid. And in fact, if anything, I'm a high school dropout. So I have my GED and I think I'm one of the very few people who have both a GED as well as a PhD. And I would say, you know, what really sparked with me uh, is I did my undergrad at Columbia University in New York. And they require every undergraduate to take a math class. And I put it off until my very, very last semester I was there because I was was genuinely afraid of making mistakes, of looking stupid, of doing badly, of getting a poor grade. And I am incredibly grateful to my graduate teaching assistant who was leading that class uh, because I went on the first day and just said, I am scared. I am nervous. Can you help me? Uh, can you help me You know, remember math? Because I, as I mentioned, I was a high school dropout. So I went through and and I was in office hours, uh, three hours every week. And really, I was that one-on-one experience that one, I thought really connected me with the power of, of math. At that point, we just called it statistics. It wasn't data science, but really got me understanding the material. Uh, and I think from that, the thing that really got me excited around data science or statistics, and I hadn't previously understood with math is the ability to answer questions. So I'm a really curious person. And I thought, oh my God, there's this technology or this technique that you can use to test things, to understand questions. That is just the coolest thing i would ever heard of. And that fueled me through graduate school and now in my career, because I just think of this as, as a technology to answer questions in a rigorous way. And uh, I, I, I I just think that's the coolest thing. And, and that's what motivates
1: me. That's awesome. And I think a lot of people actually breaking into the field, they tend to be afraid of all that math and all that technical stuff as well. Um, so it's really interesting to hear your perspective on how you also were very fearful of, of digging deep into that, but eventually went on to achieve, you know, PhD in, in a very quantitatively rigorous field. If, if you wouldn't mind, can you share kind of what got you out of that mindset of, you know, being fearful of math, not wanting to, you know, look, quote unquote, stupid. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, I mean I'm
0: I still think I'm pretty worried about looking stupid. I think I think that's pretty natural for every person. You know, we always second guess the questions we ask. I think a lot of it just came from one, solely realizing that for many topics, certainly not all of them, but for the ones I've studied, you know, I I actually am the expert in the room. And that might not always be true, but I think a lot of that comes from learning to trust uh, yourself, getting validation, but also realizing that everyone comes from a different angle. And even if the question sounds silly to someone else, you had that question, you had that thought. And so that means that the person communicating, the person doing the the teaching or the person leading the project didn't communicate or impart enough information for you to know the answer to that question. One of the things I've tried to reframe my thinking around is not who's smarter or who's less smart. It's who's communicating and did I get all the information I needed. So I tend to think of now when I ask questions as trying to make sure I'm getting the information I need. And I feel like that maybe makes it less uh, evaluative and makes it really just uh, collaborative. And I think that that takes a lot of the at least for me, the mental stakes out of of potentially asking stupid questions, but I, I think the adage that there are no stupid
1: questions is is really true, kind of refreshing for me to hear you say that because you know you've gone on to accomplish some amazing things in your career, and I know that myself and Many other data scientists also will sometimes feel that kind of bit of that imposter syndrome. And to hear somebody that's at the quote unquote top of the game uh, say that they still kind of struggle with that and feel that it just makes it um, makes you not feel as bad about it, I guess. So, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Where do you see the field of data science, machine learning and AI headed in the next two to five years?
0: So I work at Ericsson, and Ericsson is the world's leading
1: telecommunications
0: company. So as you mentioned in our introduction, we power or 40% of all of the world's mobile data is traveling across our networks in a given moment. And what we're really excited about and what I'm excited about is 5G. And I think that the connection between 5G and data science is not immediately obvious. But for me, what I think a lot about is 5G reduces latency. So what that means practically is that the lag time between a data, you know, some data being recorded and being able to process it in the edge or at the edge or in the cloud is significantly reduced. So a lot of what we work with when we're building machine learning models is historical data. And what I am really excited about over the next two to five years is benefiting from that significantly reduced latency to work with real-time data. So I think that that will improve data precision, it will improve data accuracy, and also has really interesting implications for privacy. But for me, uh, I think the real shift uh, in the near term is going to be towards thinking of real-time data and the type of systems we can build to work with real-time data rather than uh, trying to build... uh, systems to work more and more with larger and larger uh, historical data sets.
1: So I heard you mention privacy issues and privacy concerns in there. Uh, What do you think will be the biggest area of concern um, for the application of AI in the next, say, two to five years?
0: I mean, I think that the conversation around uh, algorithmic bias or algori- and trust in algorithms is going to be inc- increasingly important. Uh, I think that we have seen some societal changes where we are giving more and more emphasis to machine learning, but we haven't necessarily brought people on board in that journey. So people feel or worry that a lot of uh, decisions are being made by algorithm. Um, I think privacy and trustworthiness in AI is a critical issue, and something that uh, I personally take extremely seriously. Uh, and I think that Ericsson and, and, and really most companies as well take pretty seriously. Uh, where I think that we can really work to improve, and where I think uh, you know we are working to improve at Ericsson, and hopefully as a discipline is making machine learning much more accessible in a sense of using explainability or explainability techniques. Because right now, I think a lot of people are concerned that algorithms are black boxes. And that means that they don't know what is happening inside of the algorithm. And maybe the data scientists themselves don't know. And I think being able to offer explanations uh, and interpretability, Will make those algorithms much more trustworthy, and and by trustworthy, I mean at the societal level, um, and I think that that is going to be an incredibly important uh, focus for AI and data science, and as it regards kind of privacy and trustworthiness going forward.
1: In this vision of the future you have there, uh, what do you think will will separate the great data scientists from the good ones? I think
0: willingness to actually ask good and difficult questions. So that to me, I think touches on the imposter syndrome you asked. Uh, I think one of the challenges for data science is that we both have to have an incredible amount of domain expertise as data scientists. So we need to, you know, be on top of the literature because it's constantly evolving and there's always new things to learn. We also are now starting to embed ourselves into industries. So that requires us to have subject matter expertise, both as data scientists and for the industries in which we are working. So I think someone who can combine those two together creatively and then speak passionately about that combination is really where you'll see kind of great data scientists distinguish themselves from good ones because... We need to make sure that the tools we are using bring value to the industries in which we are working. It also means that we have a lot of work to bring our non-technical stakeholders along the journey with us because we can build the best and most innovative and cutting-edge algorithm. But if our sales team doesn't feel empowered to talk about it, that can be a challenge. Or if our stakeholders don't understand the research and the innovation that went into it, that can also be a problem. So I really think a great data scientist brings domain expertise and machine learning, subject matter expertise in their industry, and an ability to bridge the two. That
1: was really well put. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I've seen Erickson mentioned in the news and uh, in your post on LinkedIn recently with respect to the efforts of the 400 volunteers who took part in the White House Office of Science and Technology COVID-19 Open Research Dataset Challenge for information retrieval problems that were using NLP. For those people who are tuning in that maybe aren't data scientists or aren't familiar with the concepts, Uh, can you quickly give a high-level overview of what information retrieval is?
0: Yeah, of course. So information retrieval is pretty much like building a search engine. So if you have a group of documents, in this case, we were looking at uh, when we started in March, 20,000 academic papers that have been published on COVID-19. Now in May, I believe there are 70,000 papers in that same corpus so the goal is how do you retrieve information or how would you search through those documents so the goal for that type of data science is to match understanding of a question so i want to know more about this and then mapping also which documents talk about that uh, that specific topic and how about nlp i mean in this case you know nlp natural language processing is trying to understand meaning from words in a document so things like grammar sentence topics uh, and so When we are working with trying to to retrieve information from written papers, we use NLP techniques to understand what those papers and what that document is is talking about. So that could be something like topic modeling, uh, where you're trying to identify, you know, which... Is this paper talking about uh, you know genome sequencing, or is it talking about ethical
1: considerations of medical care? Uh, and that's where NLP comes in because we were working with the written word. Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, so that probably covers the two non-data scientists who aren't. Uh, sorry, the two non-data scientists listening to the podcast, which is probably my wife, my grandma. Now that we've got <laughs> <laughs> now that we've got that covered for them, could you talk to us a bit about the innovative solutions that Ericson Data Scientist developed for this challenge?
0: Yeah, I would be absolutely thrilled to because I I should say, it really was an incredible honor getting to work with this. And I think I want to set a little bit more of a picture uh, around what we did and how we came together. So the White House Office of Technology and Policy put out a call for tech companies to get involved in this research challenge. So as I mentioned, there is an incredible and growing corpus of medical papers that discuss COVID-19. And you know, even when we started 20,000 papers, it's 200,000 pages or so, give or take, that's more than any human could read probably in their lifetime. But the, really the ask was, we need to get information to medical professionals now, not in six months, not in six weeks, now. They gave a three week, sorry, four week uh, turnaround time to go from this, this challenge being posted to submitting a response. Uh, and what I found was really incredible and really, to me, speaks about our, our culture at Ericsson. Within 12 hours of this challenge being posted, uh, we had gotten you know agreement from our global CTO, our head of North America, our head of Ericsson Research in Silicon Valley to go ahead and engage in this challenge. And we were expecting, when we sent out the email uh, to call for volunteers to all of our employees in North America, we were expecting or hoping for 20 to 30 volunteers. And we got nearly 400, uh, which was incredible, but also terrifying because, you know, I had to build a organization structure. We had to come up with a communication structure, a team structure in place. So what I thought was really incredible is we worked really quickly, which can often be a challenge for data science projects because there's so many different techniques you could apply. There's so much learning to be done. And we also really focused on making the results accessible to non-data scientists, because the ultimate goal was to make information accessible for the medical and the policy community. So we put a lot of focus on visualization as well as UI and UX. And those are two elements I think that we don't always emphasize as much in uh, data science teams, because there can sometimes be a disconnect between the technical work and the end user. But for us, we had the end user really clearly in mind and what their needs would be. Uh, So that was really, for me, one of the coolest aspects is getting to make sure that the results we put together and the models we built were useful for the medical community.
1: are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field well then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field that's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job check it out dsdj.co forward slash (laughs) artists 400 people volunteered. Were they all data scientists or were they kind of
0: cross-functional teams? Completely cross-functional. So we had everything from, you know, some of our most senior and experienced data scientists. So I should also note, uh, even though the challenge or the opportunity went out to employees in North America, uh, we had volunteers in Canada, the United States, Sweden, Ireland, Brazil, and India. So it became a completely global response. Uh, But we had everything from, because again, we had to make sure everything was valuable for medical practitioners uh, who may be in the field who may not have 10 hours to sift through all of the papers even the ones we identify for them so we had everything from ai experts working on summarization techniques and applying those to technical and non-technical writers who could help us document our code uh, help people understand how to use it we had visualizers we had data engineers Uh, we had project managers. It really was an incredible uh, coming together of a variety of different skills. And I think this also to me uh, highlights that data science is really a collective endeavor. And we, even data scientist teams, even the most skilled and successful data scientist is going to have to be able to successfully work with technical uh, stakeholders, non-technical stakeholders. Uh, And that's why, you know, I, I think it's it's incredibly critical to always uh, be able to communicate across uh, those different types of, of understandings
1: of the subject matter. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Are you uh, able to share at all kind of the what the end product looked like once it was in the user's hands?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, they're available uh, online, so I would be happy to share the link with anyone or we can post it uh, in the podcast notes. Uh, But I'd say one of the findings that came out that I thought was really fascinating, so we applied some signal processing techniques to genome data, uh, and we actually wrote a white paper about the technique we developed, uh, which I would love to share with the audience uh, as well. But even using that technique, we were able to identify, for example, that the virus samples we had access to, the original sample uh, started in uh, China so we had the time date and location where this the uh, genome was collected for the virus and then spread uh, into western europe and the united states relatively simultaneously and the samples we had from brazil looks like they actually might have come from the united states so in other words it looks like the virus spread from uh, china to western europe and the united states simultaneously and then from uh, the United States into Brazil and South America. So we were able to using signal processing techniques, which you know are very part and parcel of computer science to actually understand the spread and evolution
1: of COVID-19. That's really, really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I'll get those links for me and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes so that our listeners can go check that out. So that was a really interesting finding there about the, um, the spread of the virus. Uh, what are some of the other interesting findings that you guys kind of... Uh, Got from this project.
0: I mean, so one other aspect we're looking on now is what did we learn about how to build natural language processing models and information retrieval? And so we have a variety of different avenues of research going on there, which I would love to follow up with uh, when we have papers drafted and we can share.
1: That is so cool, awesome. Hey, so what are some of the ways you see data science and AI helping fight the COVID crisis going forward? I think that that is an incredibly
0: important question uh, because I think everyone's life has been impacted by COVID-19, some tragically with illness or loss and, uh, and, and some just in terms of changing of life or being in a shelter in place. Uh, And I think what we have to to do is to minimize that human cost, that societal cost using data science and AI. And I think that's first and foremost on everyone's mind. We also have to do so ethically uh, as well. So I think there's a couple of areas I can see, and these are just uh, observations I've had from reading the press, and I don't have any great uh, expertise here. But let us hope very soon that a virus, uh, a vaccine is developed Uh, And once that happens, we have to make sure that we have supply chains to manufacture that vaccine at scale. And that is a whole domain for AI and data science in terms of supply chain optimization and manufacturing optimization. Uh, And I think that that will be a critical area for people to think about. The other is we then have to make sure that we can get that vaccine to all people. And that has, again, a, a very important supply chain and logistics problem. And then also, we have to then work with communities and understand communities around communication and effectiveness, because we have to discuss why this vaccine is important, why they might want to receive it or why they need to receive it. And that is, again, uh, a very critical space for data scientists to learn how to communicate effectively, uh, both in terms of studying messaging, as well as being communicators themselves to the communities in which they live and they are working in. I think you could go on with a bunch of different examples in this space, but I think that you can also add in even the research that's ongoing to find vaccine candidates or therapeutic candidates. And from there, I think the number of ways data scientists can get involved is pretty much limitless. I would say, though, the one piece that we always need to be mindful of as data scientists is to make sure that our work is embedded and anchored to a real stakeholder need in the sense that uh, I think it's very valuable for us, particularly as data scientists, to be humble about our subject matter expertise. And very few of us are trained as epidemiologists or as medical researchers. And so it's very critical that we stay close to people who do have that subject matter expertise and even that modeling expertise uh, because we, we don't want to get too far out in front of our skis.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. that was, that's also a very, very important message and also given given me and our audience a lot to think about. So thank you so much for that. Congratulations on your new role, AI Research Leader for the Consumer and Industry Lab. So can you tell me a little bit about how the Consumer and Industry Lab fits into Ericsson?
0: Yeah. So Ericsson, as I mentioned, is the world's leading telecommunications company. And I would say many people, when I mention that I work at Ericsson, uh, are not familiar with what we do or what what our company is. And often I'll get asked, do you guys still make cell phones or something along that line? But Ericsson is really the world's leading telecommunications company. And so that means that we build, design, service, and install many of the world's mobile networks. So here in North America, if you're using your cell phone to listen to this podcast, it's very likely that you are connected to an Ericsson managed network and using Ericsson radio equipment uh, to connect. Uh, So we are very core and essential to the world's kind of connectivity. So because of the importance of research to Ericsson to make sure we are always at the forefront, uh, we have 20,000 R&D staff around the world. So R&D is incredibly core and essential to what we do as a business. and the way consumer and industry lab fits into that is we are the voice of consumer and industry inside of Ericsson research. So we help understand and work with stakeholders to understand what consumers industry uh, industries will be doing with mobile networks, five years in the future, 10 years in the future. And then we help guide our R and D teams to make sure that we have the technology, the know how to make that technology vision possible. So for example, uh, we recently released a report around the internet of senses, which is the idea that by 2030 we forecast not only will people have XR and VR glasses, but they'll be able to interact digitally with all senses. So touch, smell, taste, uh, through haptics, through uh, human brain uh, interfaces and the like. And so it's really incredibly, I mean, very visionary uh, insights And then Ericsson's R and D team will be guided in part by that that vision setting the consumer industry lab does in terms of the orientation and direction
1: of the research we engage in. That sounds really really fascinating. So you know you've worked on several XR VR related patents. Um, Can you first for anyone who's not familiar with those terms just kind of define what XR and VR are, and maybe share with us what aspects of XR and VR are most interesting to you.
0: Yeah. So VR uh, just is short for virtual reality and XR is short for extended reality. So in virtual reality, I think the idea is you would wear a glasses or a headset and the environment you see through the glasses would have very little to do with the environment in which you are in. So for example, uh, you might be in your home, but you would use virtual reality to be at a concert or to watch a movie or to you know travel to a place you've never been to before whereas extended reality the idea is to augment to improve or to give you additional information in the environment to what you already are. So for example, it might help give you directions uh, as you're walking around a city you've not been to before. It might help guide you to a, a bus stop, or maybe you would watch a movie or a video while you're sitting on the couch through XR. So the idea is, is with XR is that uh, essentially just augments the world you're in already, whereas virtual reality kind of replaces it. Uh, and I think what I am really excited about, maybe excited is not the right word, but one thing I think is really important from a research angle is security and XR and VR. And that can mean everything from uh, making sure that the types of content people see is safe for them. How do we also make sure that people uh, are not manipulating the content people see? So if you think of deep fakes, that could be a concern that comes up in XR and VR, and we are working on solutions around that uh, as well. I think that the layering in of physical space, which is what happens with extended reality, uh, poses additional implications for security that are very important from a research perspective and very rich from a resource uh, from a research perspective, and uh, give us a lot of opportunities to innovate uh, because as we as this technology matures. Uh, it's critical that we put uh, ethics, safety, and trust uh, first and foremost in our, our research and development.
1: You mentioned something that I kind of flipped a, a light in my head about uh, concerts, movie experiences, things like that, um, kind of going forward in this social distancing world. I don't know how long this is going to be a thing or how long this is going to impact our world for, but do you see a lot of applications for that um, with you know concerts now being fully VR the movie going experience being fully VR like wh- what do you see uh virtual reality kind of having an impact in like in a in mass com- consumer market
0: I mean I think that's that's a real and important use case for this technology I think that the fundamental piece we have to remember with kind of concert going or watching movies these are fundamentally social and shared experiences so it's nice you know you can watch a movie now with Netflix, but why we go to the movie theaters, why we go to a concert is to share that experience in many cases with friends. Uh, you know, even myself, I, I don't know why, but I, I, I don't know if I've actually ever gone to a movie on my own. I, to me, it's something that I always want to share with someone else. So we can now, you know, there's so many Zoom parties where you might watch uh, a video or a TV show together with your friends, but it doesn't have that same immersiveness that, going to the concert, going to the movie theater with your friends has. Uh, and I think that XR can help bring that immersiveness, but also that shared element together. So it's not just, you know, I have a little window on my laptop and we're, we're chatting and as, as a movie is playing through Zoom or through any other messaging app, we are at, at that concert together. And that is, I think, captures in a much more fundamentally human way I, what these experiences
1: mean for us as as social animals. That's really, really interesting. By any chance, have you seen the show on Amazon Prime called uh, The Feed? I have not seen that, no. Oh, man, it's pretty much the future that you're describing like that show, is a fictionalized version of it and i think you'd find it really interesting if you get a chance to check it out and i'll be sure to post the link to, to that show as well for our listeners here but yeah it's really interesting i think you'd enjoy it especially with your research and, and everything you've talked about here um but yeah thank you so much for for that information there um so i was wondering if we can switch gears a little bit and maybe pick your brain on you know some some Career tips for data scientists. Um, you know, as someone who's the first data scientist in an organization and who wants to spread the message of data-driven methodology, uh, what are some challenges you foresee uh, someone like that facing? And can you share some tips uh, on how to overcome them? Yeah, I I, I can uh, based on on some
0: personal experience as well as conversations uh, with friends and colleagues. I think particularly for, you know, really smart and bright people graduating with a bachelor's, master's, PhD in in data science or statistics or computer science, we've gotten or you get really used to being around people who understand the concepts and vocabulary you're using and also why they're important. And what then happens, though, is when you're hired into a company, you may be for the first time or for the first time in a long time in an environment where people don't share that same understanding as you do and also don't understand the value that some of the work that you are doing uh, brings to their organization or to their own team. And so I think what can often happen in those senses is we don't have as much practice in explaining I don't want to say in layman's terms, because I think that that is is actually underselling the importance of this type of conversation, but in non-technical terms, why the work that you are doing matters and what value it brings to stakeholders, to the organization, to a bottom line. And I think that that is actually super critical. Uh, And I think that it is something that is very, very difficult to do, and it requires a lot of practice. And it also, I think, requires data scientists to be proactive and reach out to non-technical parts of their organization for coffee, for lunch, for a you know, for a virtual hangout now as we're socially distancing, to understand what it is that the teams you're interacting with are trying to accomplish, and how data science can help improve the work that they are trying to do. But it also requires a lot of humility, because it requires starting from a premise that you have some incredibly valuable and important technical skills, maybe ones that no one else in your organization has but particularly for a a data scientist who's just starting out it also requires a lot of humility and acknowledging that don't have the subject matter expertise yet that the stakeholder you're interacting with does and so while you might know the very best and very most cutting-edge solutions to a problem you might not understand how to apply those tools to that problem at hand because you don't maybe have the subject matter expertise to understand all of the dimensions and pros and cons, and all of the attempts that have come before you to try to address or or, or improve uh, something in your organization. So it, it really starts from a position of humility, and I think that that uh, can go much further uh, for data scientists than than always trying to be the smartest technical person uh, in a conversation. And that's a really hard uh, lesson to learn, and one I've I've had to get.
1: Uh, Reminded to me uh, many times. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to ask you for my next question is, is, you know, what are, what what do you look for in a data scientist beside those, those technical skills? Um, And you mentioned humility as being one of them. Um, But what can we do to kind of cultivate uh, that quality within ourselves? I mean, for
0: me, I would say part and parcel of humility also comes curiosity. And, And why I say that is I think curiosity means to me, when I interact with someone who's very curious, it means that they want to know more. And to me, that's just just an acknowledgement of the limits that any individual human can know. We're always going to have part of the picture. We're not going to have, you know, the full answer. Or maybe some of us are very, very lucky, you know, to be, and some of us are far smarter than I, but they will, maybe some will have that, that full picture of knowledge. Um, but I really, when I am hiring people, when I'm talking to people, I really resonate with people who are curious and that means people who are willing to go out and talk to, when they're on the job, talk to people who they might not have interacted with before, uh, ask questions, even if they might, might maybe sound very basic, because to me, it, it indicates that they really want to understand. And through that understanding, it's going to shape and guide how they apply tools. And, and data science is a set of tools that we have to solve problems. Um, So I really react very positively when someone kind of expresses curiosity and a problem-solving mindset. Um, And I don't know how to uh, inculcate that, but maybe one good approach or just as a practice is if you're inside of a company, try to reach out and have a virtual coffee or a conversation with someone whose work you don't fully understand uh, or, or what they're accomplishing you don't, you know, you, you haven't had the chance to interact with yet and just chat with them for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And if you're looking for a job, go to open houses, go to virtual events learn because that's also really going to help, I think guide your career because it's, I would say it's very valuable to understand a particular industry or some of the questions that come up in an industry. And when you're graduating from a data science program you still haven't tried all the industries that are out there yet so going to open houses going to startup events going to meetups is going to help one fuel your curiosity and teach you a lot about what different industries are working on and what they're trying to solve
1: i'd really like that advice as well as how to get exposed to different industries and how to understand different industries um so you mentioned networking speaking with people. What else can we do to kind of gain some industry knowledge, some industry awareness is, is do you have any other tips regard to that read a lot uh, yeah
0: and I can always say these are things that that I try to do I don't know if I'm successful at these yet uh, but I try to read a lot in the sense of I read a lot of nonfiction. I also read a lot of uh, fiction because I think to me it gives me a window into what different people or different problems that might crop up are and um I just find that inspires my own uh, creativity. But this is what works for me. I think what might work for, for everyone else is is really is going to depend upon you, your personality and what your interests are. Uh, but I think if you keep from a mindset of of humility and curiosity, it's a pretty good foundation to build on. That's great advice. I always
1: recommend to my mentees that if they are wanting to know about a particular industry, the best thing is, like you said, read, but just read case studies. Because by reading case studies, you'll be able to get exposure to the vocabulary and the terminology that is in that space that can then direct your research efforts in a more concentrated way. I I think think that's great advice. Yeah.
0: And also, it's just so helpful even to learn the vocabulary. And what's you know what solutions people have tried before, uh, because very few industries uh, are brand new, and so they've gone through different different fads, different technologies, different approaches, and so particularly when you're communicating with people who've been in industry for a long time, uh, they might view data science rightly or wrongly as just another you know flash in the pan or a new trend. And so if you can articulate to them that you understand the industry, some of the history, you will go so much further, I think, in being able to persuade people about your approach.
1: Do you have any tips for data scientists who find themselves in a room full of executives Um, and they need to communicate their findings or communicate their ideas?
0: I can only share what I try to do myself. I don't know if these are successful because I think as any good data scientist knows, it's hard to know the counterfactual here. Um, But what what I find when I'm listening to a presentation really powerful to me is when someone connects it to what that stakeholder is trying to accomplish. And what I mean by that is if you're interacting with your head of sales, what they're probably less interested at all, they might be at a personal level and some of the technical work, but they're, you know, what they're judged by, what their assessments are is how much do they sell. And so uh, I think communication is very powerful or very effective when you tie it to what that person or what the audience needs to know or why they would be excited about the work that you have done. So for a data scientist, that probably means if you're interacting with your head of sales, maybe they're a little bit less interested in the architecture for your deep neural net, and they might be more interested in how the results from the model can make them more effective or make their teams more effective. Uh, and so that can be a very delicate balance, though, because you don't want to completely black box your model or to undersell the the effort that you put into building that model. But you, I think that tying that to what does an audience need to know and why are they why would they be excited about the work that you've done is a really good uh, frame of mind to keep when you're putting together a presentation or communicating.
1: what's up artists be sure to join the free open mastermind slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science it's a great environment for us to talk all things data science to learn together to grow together and i'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that i'll be hosting for our community check out the show on instagram at the artists of data science follow us on twitter at artists of data look forward to seeing you all there Thank you for that. So what's your take on what it means to be a thought leader in data science? And how can one go from aspiring data scientist to becoming a thought leader in data science? Uh,
0: (laughs) I mean, I I realize there's a certain irony in me uh, sitting down with you and doing a podcast and, and being a little bit also dismissive of the idea of being a thought leader in in data science. So I, I want to acknowledge, you know, uh, some of the irony there. Um, I think the real challenge is that um, my thoughts around being a thought leader are really focused on what is the value of the communication you bring. And I think anyone who is on LinkedIn has seen a thousand and one posts about data science. Uh, and, but what I think really cuts through, you know, what is the signal to the noise is where you are communicating and sharing information that is valuable and then is is pitched at a level that makes the work you've done accessible. And I think people take a lot of different uh, approaches to this because what I mean by accessible can be very different depending upon your audience. So if you are a NLP expert and you wanna be a thought leader on NLP, accessible might mean talking to other people who have very deep domain expertise in NLP. So maybe you don't need to be as mindful Uh, around uh, some of the jargon, some of the framing, some of the motivation, because you can assume very clearly what people know. But if you're trying to be a thought leader in data science for executives, I think that communication will be very different. So I think the advice I might give is to be very mindful of who you are speaking to what they know, what they don't know, and how the communication you are, are bringing uh, is valuable to them, to whatever, whatever the audience
1: might be. big part of my audience will also be people who are breaking into the field, transitioning into data science, um, and they're coming face-to-face with some of these really technical concepts, maybe feeling a bit discouraged uh, and feeling a lack of motivation. Uh, do you have any tips to share with our listeners for how to stay motivated uh, in their paths? I think motivation is very
0: hard to answer general advice for. I think it probably goes down to what got you as an individual interested in this career path. And uh, I think what I try to do is to always carve out time in my schedule in my week to do things that are kind of fun. So for me, that is reading about a domain I don't know very much about, or talking to people whose work I don't know very much about, because I find that such a fuel for my own creativity. But what that might be, what that time might be, is going to be very different for each person. But I think oftentimes, particularly for people who are in school, we can be so heads down in terms of finishing a problem set, finishing a project, getting something done on a particular deadline that we forget to actually have fun. And particularly now when there's so much uncertainty, I think people are giving, them, giving themselves even less time to have fun. I worry that that's a very easy path to burnout to really bad imposter syndrome. And so whatever it means for you to have fun, I don't think that that is wasted time or just you know self-gratification. It's actually incredibly critical for every person to stay motivated and to find creativity. Uh, so I think you have to actually think of having fun and, and staying connected and staying entertained is actually part of your job responsibilities rather than something that can be uh that can be set aside
1: 100 percent agree with that yeah because in order for you like learning is kind of state dependent right so if you are trying to learn something new it's always good to operate out of a place of uh, joy and inquisitiveness right like you mentioned uh, have fun, infuse as much of that as you can in your learning process. And it just makes the process so much more enjoyable. Uh, I think
0: so, that word joy is really, it's a good one because if you, you know, if you are not finding joy or fun or entertainment or whatever word resonates with you and you, and your work at any point during the week, um, you know, uh, you have to find some way to, to build that in uh, because it it's critical to, longevity because uh, I think one thing that I'm still needing to learn myself is, is career and accomplishment. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So, you know, you can kind of push yourself for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but you, that's not sustainable for 10 or 20 or 30 years.
1: Excellent point. So last question here, before we jump into our lightning round, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story Oh my gosh, Uh,
0: that is a really good question. I would say, because I think I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome, and I especially struggled a lot with imposter syndrome uh, while I was in school. And I think the thing that I want people to remember is you don't know the story of the person who is sitting across from you, or sitting at the desk next to you, or is your TA or your professor. And we assume that everyone has had such a straight and linear path and everyone's, everyone has gone from success and peak and peak and peak and there's never been a valley. There's never been a setback. And that's just not true. Everyone has valleys. Everyone has setbacks. uh, And it is just critical to keep in mind that everyone you're interacting with from the CEO to, you know, your classmate to your professor is a human being just like you and I, I just keeping that in mind to me has really helped. It's not solved, but it's helped some of the imposter syndrome. Um, and it also just creates an opportunity to connect with people at a human level, because again, we're all humans and I find, uh, a lot of inspiration and a lot of creativity in learning people's story.
1: That was very, very beautifully put, man. I've got chills going on right now. That was really well put. Thank you for that. So let's jump into the lightning round here. What's your data science superpower? I th-
0: <laughs> It's really hard. Um, I would call myself uh, pretty creative, and that means, to me, I, uh, I really like finding strange or, or different ways to measure topics that people haven't figured out before. So I do a lot of creativity thinking, I do a lot of reading around uh, different measurements, and, and that's probably my superpower.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah, and I've heard you mention creativity uh, throughout this interview, which I which I think is pretty awesome. W- what can what can a data scientist do to cultivate
0: creativity within themselves? Um I would say re- read things that are not things you're comfortable with. Uh so read books, read papers, read newspaper articles about topics that you don't necessarily gravitate to because it's going to open up a lot of, of worlds to. I also think uh I will be honest and say I I tend to find my best ideas come during physical exercise. So, uh, you know, when I'm running or biking, I don't know what it is. I will be kind of maybe meditating while I'm doing that, and then an idea will come to me. So, probably incorporating some physical activity is is a, is a great way to to just let your mind drift and and think uh, in a different way.
1: Yes, very very good point. Yeah, definitely. Anytime I'm on my walks or anytime time I'm even working out in the morning, uh, that is really where the best ideas happen. Like my morning is usually I, I do my cardio and then move right into a uh, meditation. So going from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system, slowing everything down at rest and digest and just letting those ideas bubble up to the surface. Uh, so what is an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching? I mean, I think that
0: every data scientist should have to take a social science class. I'm not saying that as someone who is trained as a social scientist. I think it's very critical because often in computer science or data science programs, we work with synthetic data or simulated data And we don't have to spend as much time thinking about the human processes that generate data, the sources of bias that come up with that, the measurement error that can come up in that. And then as soon as we're on the job, we suddenly get hit with a ton of human-generated data. And it can be a really hard shift going from working with uh, and building models that try to mimic a particular distribution we know well to human-generated data. And I think that social science gives us really important tools to interrogate data-generating processes to think about sources of bias because humans are not like machines. We can uh, we can have all kinds of measurement error that comes up there. And social scientists have done an incredible uh, work in building tools and methods to overcome those measurement error problems.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, that's actually, you know, I ask this question a lot during my interviews and social science is the one that comes up most frequently. Um, so there's definitely something to that. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. So what's the number one book, a fiction or nonfiction or, or both uh, that you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Uh,
0: the book that I think has shaped my thinking the most is Connected by James Fowler and Nicholas Christakis. So I think a lot, uh, you know, I work at a networking company. I think a lot about social networks and I don't mean, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. In this case, I mean, the way that humans interact and that actually has really interesting properties, both from a statistical sense, in terms of how we think about statistical error and, you know, IID properties, but also in terms of how we think about nudges or uh, contamination or spread of information. Um, and I really think that, uh This has kind of interesting implications for data science and society overall. Uh, But until reading this book in grad school, I really hadn't thought about how connected in networks we all are.
1: What's the weirdest question you've been asked in an interview? Uh, So I don't have a weirdest question, but I do
0: have a weirdest process. And I actually think that, There is a a lesson here, which is, when I first decided to leave academia, uh, I, you know, applied pretty broadly, and I had no idea what the job interview process looked like, what was normal, what was abnormal, and I really wanted to, I really wanted to find a good job. So I didn't set uh, boundaries, I didn't set limits, I just, I kind of ran with everything that came up. Um, So at one point, I had a phone screener interview that lasted for three and a half, nearly four hours. I think I got off the phone at midnight on a Friday night. And the, I realized now the person was just really curious about me and what I could bring and had some questions around data science myself. But I didn't realize that maybe a four hour screener interview is not normal. So I think the lesson for me here is uh, to, even if you're interviewing for your first job, it's really important to set uh, boundaries for yourself.
1: What's your favorite question to ask during an
0: interview? Uh, when can you start? <laughs> it's a great one. Uh, it's mostly because if I interview, I'm I'm really rooting for you. I want you to be part of 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 the team. So I, uh, that's the favorite question. When uh, when I can, you know, say everything went really well.
1: So if we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 20-year-old Paul, what would you tell him? Kind of set the stage for us a little bit. Where was 20-year-old Paul at? What were you doing? And you know, what advice or what would you tell him at that point?
0: Uh, I was an undergrad at Columbia in New York. Um, I uh, was biking to and from campus uh, every day. Uh, I would say probably the thing that uh, I would love to tell myself is, and it's, it's a lesson I still need to learn. So this, this tells you how effective I am in telling myself this, but that uh, careers are marathons. They're not sprints. And the difference between an A and an A minus is probably not so meaningful uh, that you need to study an extra 10 or 20 hours uh, or, or do all of the extra credit you possibly could um, No one's going to check (laughs) in 15 years, you know, how you did on chemistry too. If you got a B plus or an A minus, Uh, it seems really important and meaningful in the moment, but uh, it probably isn't in the grand scheme of things. And there's probably some lessons in there. I still need to learn.
1: So what's the best advice that you have ever received? Um, Speak more slowly. <laughs> um, that is, I
0: I have gotten some incredible uh, mentorship from a lot of people in our marketing team, and particularly around as a data scientist, uh, communicating uh, effectively. When I get nervous, I try to I start speaking really really quickly because I want to impart all of the knowledge I have and all of the excitement I have. So I really have to be mindful and speak more slowly, and that actually allows people to engage with my ideas and what I'm saying versus just trying to give it all to you at once.
1: What motivates you?
0: Puzzles. Uh, and that is solving puzzles. So I look at something when I can find something and my, my expectation is, is we should expect X, but instead we see Y when I can figure out why that happens, that that's the coolest thing. That's what I live for.
1: So what's the song that is giving you life right now? little
0: dragon are you feeling sad it's like three minutes it's awesome go listen
1: oh yeah i'll definitely check that out right after this uh so paul how can people connect with you where can they find you
0: um i'm on linkedin it's probably the best place to get me i'm paul mclaughlin i work at ericsson Uh, i should pop up uh and you know if you do have questions or want to reach out uh i you know just like you i take mentorship really seriously and I would be happy to answer questions if anyone uh would like to learn more about how to break into data science as a career or or anything else that we didn't cover in this conversation.
1: Paul, thank you so so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. Really, really appreciate you uh coming onto the show and and really enjoyed having you on and hearing uh, your perspective on all these things, man. Thank you so much. No the thank you so
0: much. The honor is all mine and it was an absolute pleasure.